0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Mr. Gadgets calling in once again, and I guess what we'll talk about here is more audio-related things, but the real title of this one, I suppose, will be Monster Cable Didn't Start Out Being Evil. So there's a lot of talk about Monster Cable, and whenever it comes up nowadays, everybody <laughs> talks about the ludicrous it is, that monster cable gets, you know, tens or you know, sometimes a hundred dollars for the same kind of cable that everybody who knows anything about anything, especially in terms of digital cables, you can buy a cable that has exactly the same capabilities as the monster cable that might cost you thirty, forty, fifty dollars US. Admittedly, an ever decreasing amount of money in the world's major currencies, but still quite a bit of money. And you can buy the equivalent from Monoprice or other, uh, especially online, kinds of sources for five bucks, you know, uh, or maybe even less for the equivalent kind of cable. Now, since most of you probably weren't even born yet when Monster Cable first came into existence, and some of the things we're going to talk about here actually have to do with some basic audio kinds of things, which you may or may not be, you know, knowledgeable about. So, for instance, one of the things back in the day of hi-fi, you know, uh, high fidelity and stereos and things like that, back when I went to, you know, uh, university in the dark ages and being a music student, I was very interested in high fidelity reproduction of music. Yes, this was vinyl spinning discs, the uh, long play album was the media of the day. And a lot of it was about the turntable. And those of us who were more dedicated to this kind of thing didn't even buy integrated receivers that had the tuner and the uh, amplifier together because we wanted to be able to replace and shift those things in and out. So if you were really dedicated, you would buy a, a tuner separate, an AM/FM or maybe just FM tuner, separate from the integrated amplifier. That way you can always replace the integrated amplifier if the better one came along. Uh, really dedicated people would have a power amplifier on its own, and uh, then a pre-amplifier, and one of the more inexpensive of those pre-amplifiers that were uh, available at that time were, was a Dyna kit, uh, and that uh, pre-amplifier was an excellent preamplifier, and you could build it from a kit and uh, thusly save some money that way, and it was a really good preamplifier to use with whatever power amplifier you had acquired. One of my roommates uh, back in my college days had a public address system, and thusly we had a really kicking, you know, kind of uh, stereo uh, in our apartment because we had his PA uh, speakers that we would use uh when we one of the music groups I was in we had p a speakers uh in conjunction with that group a smaller group and uh so we hauled those around to various gigs and he had a crown three hundred watt uh amplifier and then uh, the speakers and they were very efficient speakers basically there's two kinds of speaker systems in general there's all kinds of variations on this, but there are closed uh Uh, enclosures and there are various types of open or ducted enclosures and in general the horn speakers which are actually a variation on the open speaker system and the ducted speaker systems were more efficient. The same amount of wattage in would get you a larger amount of decibel pressure coming out of the speaker uh one of the best and the sound that I still love to this day of uh, uh, speaker systems that were an example of the speaker design with a duct uh that would enhance the bass and uh, provide part of the uh, balance of that speaker system itself was uh and these were actually uh used you know in theater systems and things like that. one of them was uh altec Lansing was one of the ones that were available in that time frame, and there may be something. Well, I know there are earbuds nowadays that are uh, reportedly from Altec Lansing, but, uh, you know, I have no idea if that's really the old Altec Lansing. Another one that were uh, ducted speakers and more efficient were uh, JBL speakers, and uh, a pair of those cost you quite a bit. We already talked in a previous episode uh, about the – aspect of making your own speaker systems uh, and what my boss at the time in the recording studio said about that. So various types of speaker systems that were available and one of them was the Klipsch uh, system. Klipsch still does make speakers and as far as I know that is a continuance of the same company and there's a characteristic kind of Klipsch sound of the big horn loaded speakers but with Klipsch, and I really love that sound. It has really good high frequencies and and a, a nice mid range. A little bit of a, 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 a accentuation. Uh, if you looked at it on the spectrum analyzer, of the uh, middle kinds of frequencies. Not as much bass from Klipsch speakers, at least back in this time frame that we're talking about, middle 70s and on into the 80s, in uh, more analog days, and not as much digital. But uh, That was the uh, that was true of most Klipsch systems that people had in their homes. Now the larger size Klipsch uh, horn-loaded speakers were designed to actually sit in a corner, and uh, were used, as I said, in many movie houses of the day. Either Alpha Lansing or Klipsch were used in a lot of movie houses back when. And uh, I I remember going to a guy's apartment over in St. Louis when we were over there on a kind of musical tour kind of trip, we were over there to do some performances in St. Louis. And uh, there was a friend of a friend kind of that uh, I got in in contact with to get some electronic parts. He apparently worked for, uh, I think it was McDonnell Douglas, and had access to a lot of electronic parts. And so, like I said, he was a brother of this other person that I knew through another friend And uh, we, uh, you know, uh, ventured out in free GPS, found his little house. Uh, It was one of those classic kind of 1950s ranch style houses. People who live in the U.S. know what I mean. And uh, we knock on the door. And he says, uh, from inside, I can hear him yelling out. And he says, wait just a minute. And I hear this sound that sounds like he's rolling something over the floor or dragging something. Uh, There's a sound of uh, a rumbling sound like something's moving across the floor. And then he opens up the front door. Now, if you're from the United States of America, you're familiar with this house. It has a big picture window in uh, the living room, and you come into the front door on one side or the other of that living room, which is a large rectangle right there at the front of the house. Kitchen is behind that two or three bedrooms off to one side and the garage off of the kitchen. And like I say, the door is always in the corner of the bedroom. Well, what he had actually been doing is he owned two of these five-and-a-half or six-foot-tall Klipsch horn-loaded speakers that you would typically see at a large venue like a movie theater or something that needed a lot of sound going out. Very efficient, but not very practical in the living room. But this guy was a bachelor, and he had mounted these things on casters, and one of these he actually rolled into the corner so it blocked his front door. But usually, right, he would go in and out of the garage, and he would use the entrance that went in and out of his kitchen. So he didn't need to go in and out of his front door on a regular basis. But what this did do is give him perfect stereo reproduction, and lo and behold, just as I imagined, he had mounted right in the middle, or not mounted, but placed right in the middle of his rectangular, you know, living room there, a, a, uh, a sofa that was perfectly positioned to listen to the stereo separation of his speaker system. Uh Oh, the bachelor's life when you had a, uh, a better income than a beer college student could afford. <laughs> anyway, uh, and I bought some electronic parts, you know, from it and all that kind of stuff. But I'll never forget that. You know, if you got a six-foot clip speaker, you know, you just mount it on casters and move it around your living room and put it in the corner. Uh, so those are very, very efficient. The given amount of, as I say uh, – uh the, the given amount of power that you deliver to those will give you a much higher SPL. Now, it's worth mentioning, I don't know that anybody goes anymore to listen to speakers, but during this time frame, you used to go and listen to speakers and compare those speakers. And one thing that we learned uh, at this time, if you do anything about this, was you always want to listen to those speakers at the same sound pressure level. You do not want to listen to the speakers where there's a marked difference in the amount of sound coming out of the speaker because the one that sounds louder will inherently sound better to you. And thusly, if it was a store that was doing this correctly, as I mentioned, some of these were more efficient and some were less efficient. And so they would have in their speaker switch a system that would equalize the amount of sound coming out of the speaker so you could compare those more directly and not have one be a whole lot louder than the other one, which would then influence you to buy that speaker. And you could always tell if the place was trying to kind of, you know, uh, take advantage of people who were buying things because uh, they didn't have that set up and certain things would sound louder, and lo and behold, that would probably be the one that they made the big markup on, you know, if you know what I mean. Anyway, so... Now, here's a little question here, okay? There is a, you know, I, I talk about sound pl- pressure levels and those are measured in decibels, right? Uh, which are tenths of a bell. Bell being the Alexander bell of, you know, telephone fame. And, uh, the decibel is a logarithmic kind of system. So, uh, every ten decibels, right essentially 1 decibel is the minimum that one can hear a difference in sound and uh and the wattage that uh, is required to take place uh and the decibels that you hear out of the system that is necessary to take place are all related to one another how efficient the system is is dependent upon the, the wattage of the uh you know the amplifier driving the speaker system but it's related to this logarithmic scale for the decibel now as i mentioned the one decibel is deemed as the minimum that you know uh one can hear a difference in sound at whatever level and uh in order to provide a uh a difference in sound that sounds twice as loud does not require you to just double the decibels. In fact, to double the perceived amount of sound out of the system, you need 10 times power or something along that line. Uh, and so the amount of power that you need from your amplifier to be louder and not be distorted would grow, as I said, logarithmically. You could have a one watt amplifier and you could build your own one watt amplifier that was transistor based and it could be a fairly clean amplifier with a low distortion for the sound and all that type of thing and use that amplifier with any speaker system that you wished but if you were using a ported system that was more efficient then you got more decibels out for the equivalent amount of wattage and in order to make that seem twice as loud you needed to have 10 watts of power, and then twice as loud as that, 100 watts of power. And then you need a 1,000 watts of power. And so it goes up, I said, exponentially, logarithmically here. And so efficiency of the speakers was very important. And to this day, your analog line, your speaker line, that goes from your amplifier, your stereo amplifier, to the speaker's, That's usually not a digital signal, right? That is usually still analog, going from the amplifier to the speakers. Now, where this goes back to monster cable, not starting out being evil, is there's actually an effect that takes place with speaker wire and the frequencies involved with sound reproduction. When you get into radio waves, this is much more profound, and in fact there's an impedance that is associated with the wire that transfers your radio signal to your tower and in fact there's also a effect of how much that wire is going to diminish the sound how much that uh uh, of the signal you're going to lose uh, when you are transferring a radio signal because usually your transmitter is at the bottom of the tower and you've got a long wire going to your top of the radio tower because you want that antenna very high in the air in order to get the best signal out. And that actually re- is a relationship to what the frequency is that you're uh, actually broadcasting on. You, you want it a certain uh, length of minimum length uh, above the ground. And the impedance of the wire itself is very important. There's coaxial wire like you might see with a citizen fan radio or various other types of two-way radios uh there's also what the uh, radio guys would call ladder line which is literally two strands of wire separated uh, and parallel uh evenly along the entire length of the wire and the reason it's called ladder line is because there are insulators that hold it apart and it looks like a little miniature ladder right and even that has an impedance typically coaxial cable is 300 uh, ohms uh, the coaxial cable you might use to connect your receiver to an antenna is typically 75 ohms uh, and then the various letter lines are either 300 or 600 ohms and there is a attenuation of the signal any of the coaxes that are more resistant to outside influence of, of, of magnetism and uh, electromagnetic you know forces like you know hum and other kinds of things that degrade your radio signal Well, the ladder line isn't very resistant at all because it's the two insulators, but it has the least loss. And then any of the coaxials, which are more resistant to that, you lose part of your signal. And since we're talking maybe hundreds of feet up to the top of your tower, this is an important aspect. So you want to get the best balance of not losing your signal but uh, uh, and maximizing the amount of power that you're delivering to the antenna. And antennas are very similar to speakers in that regard. Now, speakers typically have 4 ohms or 8 ohms are the typical kinds of things. Typical speakers, 8 ohms, and 4 ohm or 8 ohm loads are typically what amplifiers are rated to deliver to. And it's not like you lose a whole lot of power in your distribution line to the speaker. And the frequencies are low enough that you don't have to worry about how to get the ladder line where they're even spaces apart. But if it is still an analog signal, and that signal can degrade. And depending on where your amplifier is and where your speakers are, there is some degradation of that power. You're not delivering as much power to the speaker. And part of that is something that is called the skin effect. Or the, uh, well, basically, if you look it up in Wikipedia, uh, there's the surface effect or the skin effect. And in Wikipedia, you can actually look up a skin effect. Uh, And if you see skin effect in Wikipedia, you'll see what it is I'm talking about. And what this actually refers to is, depending on the conductor, but typically with speaker wire, we're talking, uh, you know, copper conductor, right? And now, it's worth mentioning, when I talk about speaker wire, I'm not talking about the specialized connectors that one uses in modern public address systems. So if you set up for a band, if you're a roadie, there's literally a speaker connector. It's kind of like an XLR connector with three, uh, you know, contacts on it. And it, it, you plug it in and you rotate it to lock it into the speaker system. And that literal connector and the female that it walks into is called a speaker connector. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the regular speaker wire that goes, you know, just the wire that transfers from your amplifier to your speaker's. And this is true for stereos, and this is true for your 5.1 you know stereo system, and your four satellite speakers around the room, and your bass speaker, right, for your subwoofer here. So that wire, the skin effect is related to the frequency, and the higher the frequency, the the less actual area of the cross diagonal of the wire is used to transfer the electrons, right? The current going through the wire is electrons passing from atom to atom, and copper is very good about that. If they conductor, it's easy for those atoms to go from place to place. For low frequencies, it'll use, that transfer of the electrons will happen very deep into the wire. So if you were to look at that cross-section of the, of the wire, you would, and you were to be able to measure that, and there are ways to do this, the electrons will be transferring in atoms that are quite down deep beyond just the surface. But the higher your frequencies go, the less and less of the atoms are involved with the transference of the electrons. Okay? It's called the skin effect because it's closer to the skin, closer to the outside. And In that particular regard, a lot of people at the time would use just a standard uh, zip cord, it's called, right? It's got two conductors, and it's called zip cord cord, because you can pull it apart and plastic or rubber kinds of, you know, uh, of insulator around. And it does hold the wires parallel, but that's not really important here, right, at these frequencies but you can just zip it apart it comes apart kind of like a zipper right and then you can separate the wires and then you know cut off the end the insulators and twist them around and poke them into your connectors or your speakers okay and typically the cheapest uh stuff like that that you can buy was a solid core it was one wire inside of there now some people had already started using uh, stranded wire right multiple you know little strands of wire twisted together because the problem with the solid core wire at whatever gauge was the fact that it was too easy to bend it too often and it would break, even inside the insulator. So sometimes you'd use stranded cord, but typically a lot of stereos, and to this day I see a lot of stereos or multi uh, uh, you know, kind of setups that have very thin wire that is going to that, and partially that's to wires right, because they're spread around your... Your house. They're spread around your room. But the stranded aspect of things gives you more conductors, and each of the individual conductors has its own skin effect. So you're losing less power with the same gauge wire if it's a bunch of little wires that are stranded and are, you know, together as opposed to just the one single wire. And by going to a larger size of wire, which Gauge of wire is kind of funny because it's similar to gauge of shotgun shells, right? So an 18-gauge wire is thinner than a 16-gauge wire, which is thusly thinner than a 14-gauge wire. So the lower the number, the thicker the wire, okay? And so a lot of people would use 18-gauge wire, and that's what it looks like a lot of these 5 one, you know, movie kinds of things use is probably about 18 gauge wire, and you've got a certain number of strands that made up that 18 gauge total. That was the size of the wire. Well, people started using 16. There was even 22 gauge wire. You could get little teeny tiny wires, and you could get little teeny tiny stranded versions of them. Well, stop using 22 gauge and use 18 gauge instead. And for some reason, there's not much 20 gauge wire around, right? But stop using 22-gauge and use 18-gauge, and all of a sudden you've got more strands of wire, and thusly you have less skin effect, and you lose less power between your amplifier and your speakers, right? And sometimes we're talking about very small wattage of amplifiers here, but it's still true to this day. Your, you know, 200-watt amplifier is not delivering its maximum 200 watts if you're using little skinny wires as opposed to thicker wires that have more strands of wire and thusly have the skin effect spread out across multiple wires and more power is delivered to your speakers. And thusly the monster cable, and I'm doing air quotes here, was born. It was literally a monster cable. It was a big thick cable that had a whole gazillion stranded wires that would then go down to a, you know, a point that was small enough to fit into the little, you know, push the clip and stick the wire in that you would have on the the stereo side and the amplifier side and the speaker side. And that's thusly monster cables were born. Now it being that I was in college, I couldn't even afford the monster cables, you know, back then and this was nineteen seventy dollars compared to, you know, present day dollars. And no matter what somebody tells you about inflation not being around, <laughs> yeah. There's been a lot of, of inflation and thusly the same amount of money now is not the same as that equivalent amount of money was in, you know, the seventies and eighties. But I couldn't afford the monster cable, but I came across a cable that was actually used for some digital transference of data, and I came across it cheaply enough that I just took that, and it was a bunch of stranded wire, and it was multiple pairs of stranded wire, and so I created my own monster cables, right? I stripped off the wire and then twisted them together to form my you know, two conductors that I needed to uh, provide uh, a, a better transference of the power, from the amplifier to the speakers. And this is actually measurable when you talk about you know some of these things. I mean, you could actually measure the difference of the sound pressure level you would get out, and it was more important if you were using closed speakers because they were less efficient. And we're talking about smaller scale amplifiers. Now, what have we learned from this, right? When it comes time to talk about other types of cables, I guess Monster could kind of make some claims for other types of cables that were analog. But when we move into the digital age, there's no need for a monster cable, right? There's no appreciable difference between the overpriced monster cable and the equivalent 4 or $5 cable you can buy off of various sites on the Internet. It's a digital signal. It's ones and zeros. You don't have to worry about the signal degrading over time and less and less analog you know, uh, voltage swings because all the voltage swing has to do on any given line of the digital cable is be above a certain voltage and be below a certain voltage, and then you've got a cutoff voltage that means a one or a zero, and you're done. So obviously... There's no real reason why you should pay extra for that. But their entire company was based upon this. Our cables are better than any other cable that you can use from the very beginning, and they literally haven't figured out a way to have any other advantage. Gold connectors kind of get into this, but that's a whole other subject, and there's a whole lot of things that have gold connectors, okay? That's better because they don't oxidize, and you know that, The connection doesn't, you know, uh, reduce any uh, transference of the electrical signal and all those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, but there's a lot of cables that have that. So they started out with a demonstrable advantage that justified a higher price. But when they moved on to other things, they never came up with other reasons why their cables were better and There really isn't much of a reason why their cables are better, but people don't know the difference, and thusly, well, this must be better because it you know, costs more. But they didn't start out being evil. It's just that they're stuck in this rut of we make cables, and our cables are better than everybody else, and it ends up being there isn't any, especially for digital ones. There isn't any way to prove that they're better than anybody else, but that's the only thing they have as a business model. Now, what do we learn from this? As I said, one thing we learn is when things change, you either need to adapt or eventually somebody's going to see through and figure out that the emperor has no clothes on, right? If you're a buggy manufacturer, you better start fig- uh, figuring out what you can manufacture with the same tool and die equipment that doesn't involve a horse drawing it anymore, right? You better get into this automobile kind of manufacturing of automobile chassis or you're going to be out of business soon, right? If you're a stable boy and your father was a stable boy and your father, your grandfather was a stable boy, and it gets to be the early 1900s, you better find another way to make a living because you aren't going to be a stable boy for that much longer because the stables aren't going to be necessary for that much longer because horses are going away and cars are coming in. And, What do we learn about this for other companies, okay? One that I can think of is Microsoft. Now, Microsoft is built upon the fact that they came up with an operating system. They actually went out and bought an operating system from another company there in Seattle so that they could say to IBM when they came up to them and asked about an uh, operating system for this new PC, which the PC, you know, had its birthday just last week when I'm recording this. And... They said, yeah, we've got an operating system for that. And they rushed around and bought this operating system that became the, the operating system that the P, that every PC had with it. And then they came out with Windows once the graphical thing started becoming popular that kind of sat on top of Windows. And it's been included with your computer all the way along. It's hard to buy a computer without the operating system that comes from redmond washington right it's just the natural thing you buy a pc they come with that operating system but i do believe we really are getting into a quote-unquote post pc world there's going to be more and more devices that do not run windows or at least the windows that we think of traditionally on the desktop there's going to be more and more devices that run other kind of operating systems. Now, Redmond would love that to be mobile Windows, but a lot of those devices, like the phone that is you know uh, in your pocket or in your bag uh, and tablets that are coming out and the set of talks that you have, well, those aren't running a Windows-based operating system, and Microsoft doesn't get a little bit of every single one of those devices. I've long said that in Bill Gates' perfect world, right, everything you own would have a, a Microsoft operating system on it. And they get a little chunk of change, right, for every single thing you buy. Everything should be a Microsoft operating system. But that's not how it's turned out to be. we got a lot of things that are running Linux and other kinds of Xs, right? You know, WebOS is kind of based on uh, a Unix kind of a variant. We've got Linux variants all out there. Android has really kind of... Java code running on top of a Linux kernel, uh even the BlackBerry if it manages to survive is a, a you know, a, a Unix kind of uh variant, right? Unix compatible kind of an operating system that's a real time operating system, but you can type Unix style commands if you can get to a terminal in there. And the world is a changing. And what is that going to mean to Microsoft? Are they going to react to that and change? Or are they going to just keep on doing what they've always done and the world's going to pass them by? And you know, it seems like that couldn't possibly be. But I've got another story to tell you. When I did business travel in the 80s for the small computer company that I uh, – that co- computer software company that I worked for, and they got bought out by uh, the database company from California – I was on a trip to Boston, and this is the high life in Boston. This is back in the days when the uh, the housing, in the Boston area at least, was really going up, up, up. I mean, the reason why Bob Vila and this old house had so many old houses that you could redo uh, and get a loan to be able to uh, do you know upgrades on that house is because If you just waited a couple of years, your house was worth that much more and you could get a loan against it, right, and do improvements on your house. And I remember reading a story about that and also then in that same newspaper, I read another story and it was talking about Novell. Now at this time, in the 80s, Novell owned networking. Novell was networking. Microsoft, usually like I say, they buy their way into a market. They don't write it themselves, okay? They did continue to develop, you know, DOS, and they developed Windows internally. But lots of other things, they bought that. And Microsoft tried to break Novell's stranglehold on networking three times, as I remember it, and it was finally the third one that started making the inroads. But at this time, Novell was networking, right? There is Banyan and a couple of other you know minor kinds of things. But so basically, if you were talking about microcomputers, you were a Novell shop for your networking. And at this particular time, in this newspaper story, I noticed that the person said that there were more resellers of Novell software. Now, not certified professionals or you know, people who could support other things, but just people who sold Novell software. There were more resellers of Novell software than there were Southland Industries locations in the United States of America, and I don't know who owns them now, but at this particular time, Southland Industries, I think it's close to that if I'm not exactly uh, right on that, basically what Southland Industries was known for was they owned 7-Eleven stores. So there were more resellers of Novell in the United States of America in the middle 80s here than there were 7-Eleven convenience stores in the United States of America. And yet, where is Novell today? Basically, they don't exist anymore, do they? And ironically, part of what was Novell has been bought out by Microsoft. So, what you think of now as the great ones, there are other things that in the middle 80s, people would laugh at you, they would scoff at you when you suggested that it was possible that Novell would no longer own the networking market. And yet it happened, because they let Microsoft chip away and chip away and finally come up with something that could compete with them, and they didn't innovate to stay ahead, and They're gone. And it's the same way with Monster. Monster is eventually going to be gone because eventually people are going to see through this. It's not really that much different than going to a big box store, you know. If you go to any retailer and you buy a cable there, it's going to cost you not as much as a Monster cable. Of course, it is a Monster cable. But it's not going to be as cheap as it is. You can buy an equivalent cable that electrically will accomplish exactly the same task online. So you have to think about this, and you have to innovate, and you have to progress. You can't rest on your laurels, and if there's anything anywhere where that's more true, it's in the technological world here. Now, the other thing that we've learned about this is there is a loss of that, and so this is a why is it we're still doing this, okay? Some examples of why is it we're still doing this is, why do we build houses, at least in the U.S., and I'm assuming it's this way in a lot of places still, why do we still build houses the way we houses, built houses 100 years ago? We bring a bunch of lumber to a location, and we build it by cutting the lumber up into pieces and nailing it and screwing it and various other fasteners together to build the house. It's like saying you bought a new car, and they deliver a bunch of, of you know, pieces and parts to your driveway and they build the car in your driveway. Okay? So why are we delivering the sound to the speakers the same way we've been delivering sound to speakers ever since they invented amplifiers? There are certain powered speakers that I know are available and a lot of people use in studios for their home recording studios and things like that. Why aren't there more... Because I can build a nice amplifier with a good amount of wattage. And with this whole way that the decibels work, you know, you can get a good amount of nice, clean sound, especially with some of the new uh, designs of amplifiers that are available now in a very small space with very small amounts of power. And you don't need 200 watts of power, right? Because really 200 watts of power is just, you know, somewhat louder than 20 watts. If you had a more efficient speaker and if you had a nice, clean, high-power amplifier directly on the speaker and we delivered a digital cable signal to that amplifier and then had a digital analog converter, or even if we delivered an analog signal to that power amplifier, but your centralized system was more of a pre-amplifier that you don't have to worry about this kind of thing at line levels, right?, at line levels that come out of the amplifier, you could deliver that analog signal even over there without losing much, and then you could amplify it at the speaker and deliver it more efficiently that way. Why don't we see more of that? Why don't we see some innovation in these things? Because a lot of things having to do with sound have radically changed, right? Nobody uses LPs anymore unless they're way into sound and like the sound of LPs and are basically way the exception rather than the rule, right? It's a real kind of nerdy specialist geeky thing to be into LPs. And we totally totally rearranged how we deliver the sound out there in terms of the medium but that medium then goes into an analog signal and gets delivered to the speakers basically exactly the same way it did in the 1950s and 1940s when the basics of, you know, those kinds of amplifiers came into their peak of development. The only difference between that and now is we went from tubes, which I'd also like to say, real electronics glow. And I would love to have the money to own a a really nice, crown tube amplifier or, you know, a Macintosh, which is the ultimate, and this is not the computer, this is the, the stereo equipment, a Macintosh amp with real tubes that glow, but that's not as clean an amplifier. It affects the sound, okay? It's not as clean as some of these new, uh, you know, designs that are available at solid-state amplifiers, but we still have them centralized, and we still have little teeny tiny thin wires delivering it out to the speakers, and that's not as efficient. So we fixed that by just upping the amplifier's wattage. But that's really not an equivalent kind of thing. I mean, I could use less wattage, I could be more efficient, I could use less power if I had more efficient speakers, and if I outsourced, if I moved those amplifiers out to the speaker systems rather than centrally. A lot of large-scale PAs that I saw uh, coming in in concert venues a lot of those are that way. The amplifier is in the PA speaker, and it delivers a line level signal of what that speaker is supposed to be reproducing, and the speaker has power, and it's the amplifier and the speaker all integrated together, but not in the home, at least not that much. Powered subwoofers are the only time when you see typically a powered speaker, not anything above those Uh, base speaker frequencies. Why not? There's an opportunity there. There's always an opportunity. And are you going to be the one who sees that opportunity and does something to make something, do something in this particular regard? Because if you do, you can have then that capability of making a lot of money, maybe even as as, as much money as Bill Gates, right? So be careful out there. And this is Mr. Gadgets, hoping to see you. I found out I'm going to be at the Ohio Linux Fest, so I hope to see you at the Ohio Linux Fest, which by the time this comes out, it will be closer to that. (coughs) And if not, be careful, and I'll be out here on the technological frontier, and who knows what we'll talk about next time. But be careful, and we'll talk to you later. Bye now.